1: Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Robin Plumer, who has been a practitioner at one point in her life of emergency medicine for something like 30 years. But in 2008, she moved to New Zealand and it sounds like she got to see a medical system that operated differently than ours and in ways that perhaps were more compassionate she then earned a postgraduate diploma in hospice and palliative medicine at the university of auckland and after caring for her own father who had parkinson's disease she became interested in the passage of new jersey's medical aid in dying law in july 2020 she started a practice called compassionate endings new jersey with a former nurse colleague who shares her passion for very personalized comprehensive patient care. And I look at this, we work with a lot of concierge medical providers, and we've had other concierge providers on this show. And this is just one end of the continuum of care. That's how I'm looking at it. But I would love to hear just sort of what about it in New Zealand did you see that you weren't seeing here? And how did that form what you wanted to do?
0: Right. So when I was in New Zealand, medical medically dying was not legal. Actually, it has become legal in the past year, although it's a little bit different. But um, in New Zealand, I was working in the emergency department and I became interested in hospice, which was something I always had an interest in. But hospice has a much more central role, I would say, in New Zealand. Every community has a hospice service, and even a hospice shop where everyone goes to buy and sell their their furniture and household goods. And um, that was really where I learned my hospice training. And pretty much all around the world, I think hospice is quite similar in terms of its goals and objectives, how they care for patients. Although I would say that in New Zealand, they had a lot more options available clinically than we have in the US. I had to scale my expectations down a little bit coming here, coming back to the US. Um, and the other thing is, of course, no one has to worry about Medicare and coding and what you know what specific diagnoses you have because it's just a benefit that's covered under the socialized medicine system, which actually is great. No one goes without care there. Even people who have moved from other countries or are visiting New Zealand and don't even have residency or citizenship, can be treated at hospice or even in the hospitals, which is amazing.
1: That is amazing given yeah. our mm-hmm. current system. So yes. what yes. is, yeah. let's talk about medically yeah. assisted or medical aid in dying. Yes. What does yes. that actually yeah. mean and how did that evolve around the United States? Right, so the, the term we
0: use now is medical aid in dying and other places it's been called Things like death with dignity, physician-assisted suicide, physician-assisted dying. But the current term that we like to use is medical aid in dying. Well, it goes back to Kevorkian, I guess in the 19, I think that was 80s or 90s, but he was kind of outside the system. And so um, following that, about 24 years ago, Oregon passed the first medical aid in dying law. They were the first ones in the country. And it took quite a number of years until other states started to jump on the bandwagon, I think maybe about seven years ago. And now we have 11 states that participate uh, in medical aid in dying. And I think the biggest question I get asked is, how is medical aid in dying different from suicide? That's usually the biggest question.
1: So that's a great question. mm -hmm. Let's pretend I posed it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So...
0: Lots and lots of ethicists have looked at and debated this question. And what most of us in the medical aid and dying community feel is that the difference is that suicide is a term that's assigned to people who have the choice to go on living, but decide that they wanna die. So by that, I mean, they don't have a terminal illness. Um, Often, not always, it's people with mental health issues, right, and or people who have long-term chronic conditions but they're not considered terminal. Um, so in the case where someone makes the decision to die, but they have the option to keep living, we kind of call that suicide. What's different in medical aid and dying is that these are people who have a terminal illness. One of the requirements for aid in dying is you have to have a terminal illness with a prognosis of less, of less than six months, which goes along with how you get into most hospices to have that same criteria although it's a little bit more stringent, I'd say for medical aid in dying. Um, so when you have that diagnosis, then you, and you also have to be able to make, mentally capable to make this decision, you have the option in states that offer it to ask for medical aid in dying. Now, most of the states, the 11 states, have a pretty similar um, protocol that people have to go through to qualify. Uh, in terms of having a prescribing or attending doctor and a second consulting doctor. And uh, Hawaii is the only state that requires mental health evaluation. In the other states, it's left up to the prescribing or or a consulting doctor, whether they feel that that's required. But the bottom line is that up until the day that you decide to self-ingest the medication, the patient has to be able to say, I know what this is. I'm doing this thoughtfully, and this is what I want to do. So they really have um, ownership of that decision. And
1: that's really key. It does, of because course. Because what you are people. talking about is aid, yeah. then. They have to do they aid. have to be? Aid? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do they, yes. You're not administering mm-hmm. medication in that situation. Is that right? You so are. So, correct. Pre- correct.
0: Yes, I am providing it. And of course, there's a lot of question about this. By the way, Canada has a medical aid in dying. And in Canada, people have the option of having a medical practitioner come and administer the medicine intravenously. So does New Zealand now, by the way. Um, But in the U.S., all of the states require that the medicine must be self-administered by the patient somewhere through the GI tract. And I probably don't need to get into too much detail, but there's several openings to the GI tract, okay? And also some people might have a PEG tube or a colostomy. But I, as the doc, am allowed to come to the patient's home, take the the medicine is a combination of several powders. So it comes in a powder form. I can mix it. I can present it to the patient, right? But they have to drink it, okay? They have to self-administer in that in that way people do have questions about do I have to go to the pharmacy myself do I have to mix it do I have to put it in the glass no they don't have to do any of that part but they have to ultimately drink it or push the syringe that's going to administer it Mm
1: -hmm. okay yeah so Mm -hmm. I'm gonna use my family's example Mm -hmm because that is how mm-hmm. I met Dr. Plumer wonderfully. Mm-hmm. We were in a mm-hmm. quagmire, frankly, mm-hmm. of my dad's mm-hmm. end of life from a cancer that was gonna, as he saw it, strangle his windpipe and it was happening fairly quickly. He went into a hospice mistakenly believing that hospice mm-hmm. and maid or medically aid in dying mm-hmm. were one and the same. Mm -hmm. So is that an uncommon error or a common error? Yeah. Hospices have a complicated relationship with
0: medical aid and dying. Um, You know, I was out of the country when the New Jersey law passed, so I can't really take credit for helping to pass the law. And it was kind of a surprise to me when I came back and found out that New Jersey, a happy surprise to find that they had passed the law and When I first learned about it, the hospice I was working for at the time had a little uh, educational presentation and they said, here's this law, here's how it works. And then the parting line was, and none of our doctors are allowed to participate. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So who's going to do it? So about six months later, I left that hospice and I thought, well, let me investigate for myself who's doing it. And I tried all the ways an intelligent person would try. I Googled and I called and I could hardly find any doctors who were doing, who were participating in the law. So that was what kind of set me up with the idea that maybe I should figure out a way to do it. And getting together with my, you know, um, friend and nurse colleague, um, Elizabeth, we sat down and tried to figure out how could we do this in a really ethical way that would allow us to have a lot of patient contact would be very personal. And also, really, we're providing a service that the hospices don't want to do. Now, we work with the hospices, because we, we really interface a lot generally with the nurses and the social workers. Um, but we provide the part of the service that they don't want to do. They don't want anything to do with writing the prescription being there the day of any of that. So we kind of provide that aspect of it. But we are really holistic. And, you know, in the best case scenario, and again, your dad, unfortunately, was—he, um, I only knew him for a few days because he found me too late, sadly, and that's not uncommon. But if someone is, is with me through the process of qualifying, that's a minimum of 16 days from the time I okay. meet them and take their first request until they can get the medicine. And that's a pretty long time. And so we work really hard with the hospice team to try to provide like the best palliative care. So often we're working with them to improve the pain medicine regimen or whatever other symptoms need to be managed. And, you know, I think when you ask people about medically dying, people who don't know, they assume that people might choose this option because they don't want to be in terrific pain, right? They want good pain management. But in actuality, hardly anybody picks medical aid and dying because they can't get good pain management. Hospice is really, really good at providing pain management. The reason people usually choose it is that they don't want to be dependent on their family and they don't want to fade away and become not the person that they wish to be till the end of their lives. It's a, it is a lack of or a, a fear of loss of dignity. That's the main proponent, I think, of choosing medical aid and dying.
1: And that was true for my thought, yes.
0: Right, Yes. right. And we've also learned there's a really particular personality type that chooses this. It's not for everyone. Who is it? Who is it? Yeah. What do you see? Personality? Yeah. What are the characters? The personality type is people who are fiercely independent. That's the main thing. And also very resolute in their thinking. So we rarely get people who waver in their decision Although I will say that it can be complicated sometimes if they don't have supportive families or people who understand what they're doing. But as far as the individuals, they are fiercely independent. They are not the people who want to die, you know, in bed, comatose for a long time, having everybody else take care of their bodily functions. That is not what they want. Um, In fact, I had one lady who had heart failure. And the day that the box came in the mail from hospice with incontinence supplies, that was the day she called me. She said, I am not going there. (laughs) So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it, it is a dignity thing. And, you know, I don't mean to be overly romantic about it, but obviously I've seen a lot of terrible deaths in the emergency room. I've seen a lot of sudden deaths where families are totally blindsided by it. And people who are dying in a hospital setting without people that they love nearby, that's awful. And You know, if you ask people when they're well, what would a good death look like? And of course, good death is a weird phrase, right? But most people will say, well, the first thing they say is I want to die in my sleep. I just don't want to wake up. That's what most people say. But beyond that, what they say is, well, I want to be in my own home. I don't want to be in a hospital. I want the people I love to be around me. I don't want to be in pain. I don't Mm -hmm. want people sticking needles in me. And I want the chance to say goodbye. And in fact, that is what you get with medical aid and dying. And it's kind of amazing to have people be cognizant and able to say goodbye to all the people they love. They're surrounded by whomever they love. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm not gonna make you cry, am I? And then they literally, and then they they watch the person they love drink the solution and fall asleep. That's it. They fall asleep and it's so gentle. And it's so peaceful. And then there's that period of time when they're sleeping, which we think people can still hear. So we always encourage family members to either speak with them, play their favorite music. We had one lady who her family showed a slideshow, which was amazing of, you know, all the things she had done, beautiful playlists that the patient has made up on their own. And you have to believe, because we can't really ask them, right? What happens? But they just sort of, just float deeper and deeper and deeper surrounded by love, because for sure they feel that they absolutely feel that the people that they love are around them. And, you know, sometimes when I meet people and I say it's going to be 16 days till you can get the medicine. First thing is, Oh my God, I can't wait 16 days. That's so mm-hmm. long. But you know, that is really precious time for them. Not only does it give them a chance to put, you know, financial affairs in order, but it gives them the time to see everybody who's important to them and say those things, right? Thank you, I love you, I'm sorry. Everyone gets to have that closure. And although I think there's some more formal research going on now, I have to believe that the people who watch their family members die in this way are less traumatized by seeing how how gentle it is. So it's an amazing thing. Sometimes I kind of feel like a midwife of death, honestly just sort of ushering people out. And, you know, my role is to be there and make sure that there's no emergencies that happen, right? To make sure everything's good and to reassure the families, right? I was going to say,
1: I think only part of your job, Dr. Plumer, is to aid Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. patient. The other piece I observed with Mm -hmm. you was the Mm -hmm. compassion and containment you brought to a situation that felt Mm -hmm. really chaotic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when it didn't need to be. I and mean, when you walked in that door, yeah. mm-hmm. there was a calm that came, like, I understand how this works. I can tell you about the yeah. process. I can tell you how we can get there. And that mm-hmm. that is an enormous comfort because it then allows the family, in my experience, to actually do the goodbye.
0: Right, and you know, technically the way the law is written in all of the US states is that you don't have to have a medical professional present. And I personally think that's terrifying. Could you imagine (laughs) that you hand this medicine to a family and you're expecting them to mix it and they have to present it to the family member. They would be so, I think, they would be so anxious about that part of it that they can't really be fully emotionally present. So Mm -hmm. I feel like my role is to take care of the technical stuff and yeah, I'm there, but I kind of take a little step back, right? I want them to be the ones around the patient. It depends on the family, how much, how much interaction they want me to have. But again, I'm kind of standing a little bit in the background, and I'm there to be that calming force. And it's an incredibly sacred time. I mean, it's an incredible honor to be present with people at that time. I mean, I just can't even tell you. I mean, emotionally, it does obviously take a toll on, on us as well. Whatever, whenever I attend a medical aid and dying death, I'm just zonk for the rest of the day because there's just so much emotional energy that goes into it. But it's also just unspeakably beautiful in many ways.
1: How many people support this movement in medic? Is it the majority of our well, country supports this process or are we still a minority? Do you know? Well, who, who knows, right? So again,
0: 11 states currently have passed the law. Now, this year, there were um, laws in the, or they were attempting to pass laws in Massachusetts, New York, and Connecticut, which you would think would be states that would want to pass that law. None of them passed. Is that right? Which is sad. None of them passed, right? So on the East Coast, you've got Maine, Vermont, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C. I think Delaware would like to pass a law too. Um you know, we are a little bit worried about the political, um you know, situation in the country. I hope that it's not going to get erased, but who knows? We're trying to keep a low, mm-hmm. a low profile, <laughs> right? Right. And look, even now, it's hard. It's very hard for people to find me. You it know, was even if they're pretty connected.
1: We had many graduate degrees among mm-hmm. us. and live in new jersey and it was a a hunt
0: yes no it is it is difficult and of course our situation is we don't want to be all that overt about it it's not like we're going to have a billboard you know on on 95 advertising our services so people really kind of have to find out either through hospice or through you know other doctors who have dealt with us before it's still a little bit underground even though it is completely legal yeah
1: and Can I assume there is Mm -hmm. not insurance coverage? Mm -hmm. That's not the people who listen to this podcast by and large. But I'm curious, does insurance cover Mm -hmm. any piece of this? No. So the law is written so that no
0: federal insurance uh, coverage can cover any of this. So technically speaking, that would imply that private insurance could cover Mm -hmm. it. But I have never heard of a situation where they do either for the medication itself or for our services, right? Yeah, so there's a lot that's going to be evolved with this law. I think it's really it's really a field in its infancy, which is kind of exciting, really, to be involved in it, you know, in it in this time.
1: Palliative um, care yeah. in our country mm-hmm. is pretty much in yeah. its infancy, isn't it?
0: It, it is actually right, and we need to have more of it. And when you think of all the people who are going to be older, right, there's going to be a lot more a lot more need for it. And of course, one of the the great demographic groups that we can help in aid in dying is patients with dementia because you have to have full mental capability to make your own decisions. And so patients with dementia are not eligible for this option at all.
1: It's also difficult to Mm -hmm. have a Mm six-month death within period for somebody with dementia as well. Yes, that's right. Now, what
0: some people do, is they go overseas and there was um, a book recently. Um, mm-hmm. Oh no, called In Love by Amy Bloom, where she talked about her husband who had early an early diagnosis of dementia, and he said, "I don't want to become the person I'm not." And they actually went to Dignitas in Switzerland to take advantage of uh, really it's euthanasia there. But All right. All right yeah, yeah.
1: So what haven't I asked you or? Yeah. Better yet, yeah. what would you like to leave our audience with about this process? I found it incredibly loving, mm-hmm. but I would love to know yeah. what you would like our audience to operate with.
0: Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it is an incredibly loving and intense, an intense kind of a of a of a thing. You know, one thing that people often say to me is, "Oh, I'm so glad we have this because we even let our we even we even believe in putting our dogs down when they get really sick." And sometimes I'll say to them, well, yeah, you have, you have euthanasia for animals, but the big difference, of course, is the animals don't get to weigh in on it. So I think the main difference for us really is that this has to be a very conscious decision by the patient themselves. They are participating up until the moment of ingestion. That is the big difference. And the other thing mm-hmm. is the hospices, although many of them now are supportive, the individuals are supportive, even though they can't participate. They don't really know when to bring this up to patients, right? So it's not like when you sign up with hospice, one of the data points is, oh, by the way, medical aid in dying in New Jersey is available. So the hospice nurses have to, or social workers, have to walk this fine line where they wait for a patient to give them an opening. So it might be something like, oh my gosh, I just don't know how long I can do this. Can't you make this process go faster? That's the kind of line that they wait for, where then they feel empowered to say, well, by the way, did you know medical aid in dying is legal in New Jersey? And that's often how people in hospice find out that the law even exists. That, I was saying, not a, yeah, that, that was so not
1: long. our experience at all, Mm-mm. not at all.
0: Right, no. right. They often, and, and then that depends on your individual nurse or social worker and how they feel about right. it, whether they'll even about. bring it up. So in California, which is a little bit ahead of us, they now have part of their law is that every hospice has to have a statement on their website about whether they support or don't support aid in dying. So that at least brings it to the forefront, I think, where people might look at that and say, oh, what's aid in dying? What is that? Am I eligible? So that's a good step. But right now it's still, people are kind of tiptoeing around the whole issue.
1: It's an underground movement still. Yes. It
0: is. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the other thing I would say that's interesting to me is, um, you know, I think if you look back at the 70s and 80s, when childbirth was so medicalized, and then you had women, really kind of of my generation, who wanted to like take that back, right? And midwives, you know, started to be present at births. And, you know, I had my three children with a midwife, not at home, but with a midwife. And the whole idea about making that natural process more natural and not so over medicalized. And boy, I see a lot of parallels with that, you know, having death be in the home with family, not so medicalized. I mean, a little bit medicalized because you're using the medicine and I'm there. But still this idea about it being a more natural and gradual passing and not having it be hooked up to monitors and, you know, just so oh, is the term and everything else. Yeah. So I think it's kind of cool that there's that there's those two ends of the spectrum, right? Birth and death being kind of taken back. Yeah, yeah. So it's well, a fascinating wonderful. area to be in, and so rewarding. And we've just really had some amazing experiences with almost every one of our patients that we've met. So, yeah.
1: Well, I, for one, thank you for yeah. the work you do and yeah. appreciate you joining me yeah. today on Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast.
0: My pleasure. And it was really lovely to meet your family as well. So
1: thank you. Yeah. This yeah. has been an episode of Beyond yeah. the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest was Dr. Robin Plumer. If you like this episode or any other, please click that button on your platform of choice. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit BeyondTheBalanceSheet.com to read more about our guests and resources, and sign up for our newsletter.